Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to Books and Beyond with Bound, where we talk to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. So, on this episode, we spoke to Farah Bashir. She is the author of Rumors of Spring, and it's a memoir that covers her coming-of-age story in Kashmir amidst all of its ups and downs throughout its war-torn years. And I have to say, it blew our minds. Yeah, the book was really intense, Tara. I mean, some scenes haven't left me. Um, you know, especially the one where Farah had been corresponding with one of her love interests through letters, and then the post office caught fire, and that was it. That was the end of it. Yeah, and you know, there's so many scenes that make you really wonder and and, and empathize with what she must have been going through growing up amidst so much uncertainty and turmoil and. You know, at a point when even going to something like a beauty parlor wasn't possible. You know, ordinary things, and it was very interesting because the book also is centered around and structured around her grandmom Bobby's death and how her grandmom was so special and important to her. And I really love that about the book because, as you guys know, I'm very close to my grandmom, and in this episode, I also share a lot of stories about my own grandmom. um this episode covers a lot of topics like death and losing your loved ones which might get a little upsetting for some listeners especially during the pandemic so please do exercise caution by the way guys i'm writing a memoir right now about my own granddad who according to me and maybe a lot of other people is india's best architect so if you want to write about a special person in your life just like the way farah did and you don't know how to go about it our mentors can actually help you do that you can end up writing your dream memoir with us so do reach out to us at connect@boundindia.com or dm us at boundindia to sign up because there are actually a very few slots left for our mentorship this month so for now let's talk to farah to find out about how she grew up in kashmir and how that shaped her identity as a writer Tune in. Hi Farah, thank you so much for coming to Books and Beyond today. We're very very excited to have you here. Hi Farah, hi Michelle, and um, thank you for having me on your show. So Farah, both Michelle and I were mind blown with your book. Um and it sort of reminded us of Anne Frank, the Anne Frank story of growing up in Kashmir because you talk about you know so many struggles that you had to deal with about how you know all of these ordinary joys of your life like going to the salon were banned um you know you talk about night patrols and you do all of this from the point of view of a young girl's voice so could you tell us about how that point of view came about and what was it like to write from that point of view so many years later uh, as the book begins uh, uh, with that chapter where Our, my life and our lives changed in that one uh, one hour. My sister and I we go and in, walk into a salon. By the time we're out, uh, everything is changed outside. And uh, there was a shooting incident in the city. And after that, there was a curfew that was announced, and that completely changed the face of uh, the world. That as you know, as we had known. I it was very difficult for a 12 year old to make sense of anything that was happening to be honest till I turned 26 uh I hadn't really made sense of what had happened in those formative years obviously as one grew older one was you know life was changing on a on an hourly basis we were struggling and we were all it was all about staying alive from one day to another so what was happening and giving it a thought 
wasn't really a matter of concern at that point. Uh, I, in some instances, I just wanted my own life back. I wanted, I was, I used to miss school. I, it's also much later did I realize that uh, I really enjoyed reading Little Women because it was, even though it's set in post-war England, it still has some semblance of a normal childhood uh, or, or young teenage girl's perspective. But it's when I uh, joined Reuters as a journalist much later after my graduation, and I used to uh, see this is, I'm talking about 2005 to 2008, and this is the time of Iraq war. We used to get images and news from Basra and many other parts of Iraq. Uh, there were there was uh, this is also we use at that point we were getting a lot of news from Palestine, uh, Ramallah, and and there was uh, I had this strange uh, urgency as to feel that I wanted to tell what we went through, what we were going through, and I felt like the world didn't know enough. And we were not part of the conversation of how conflict zones usually are spoken about. So I felt a sense of urgency in really in 2007, 2008, uh, about talking about those days, about articulating those silences. I mean, I was I was not a very talkative child and I lost the ability to process grief, to process loss. It was my cousin's funeral who had been killed uh, the night before, and I was not able to cry. For the longest time, different people have different coping mechanisms. My Mine was really turning against my own body. And uh, and also because I I had I had really bargained with my mother and my grandmother for a few days uh, before they actually sent me to the salon that I wanted to go to. Otherwise, you know, my hair used to be cut by the same barber who used to come and cut my father's hair, a neighborhood barber. And uh, so I, I wanted to go to the salon that my friends used to go to, so, you know, in, in a way to belong. But then I realized I, as, a, as a kid, then I thought as a young girl, I thought maybe it's something that my, if I hadn't bargained uh, or I hadn't pestered my, my family, it, had, it wouldn't have happened. So I started, I vividly remember that particular night, that evening when I plucked out a chunk of my hair and I kept doing that for, the, for, for almost three decades. So it was many, uh, it was not just one particular incident that made me relook at that, um, my childhood and or teenage and the transition from a young, uh, from a young girl to a young woman and what had happened. There was also another incident in 2010 when uh, 120 boys uh, were killed in Kashmir and most of them teenagers. The youngest was eight years old, Samira. And there was there were lots of journalistic accounts. There was this uh, the the first boy who was killed. It made me imagine his world in a different way. Like his friends, his maybe he liked someone or someone liked him in the neighborhood. He was sixteen. Uh, so what happens to people who are left behind or who are not who don't get who survive? So it made me go back and think that I had also survived. Uh, in in at a point in Kashmir's history, contemporary history, when I lost so many people, and I could have been one of the one of them. I could have been a statistic too. But what happens to the psyche of people? What happens to the lives of people, especially women? And uh, that that's when I started thinking deeply. And it was I've always felt it was very close to me, and I didn't know how to articulated. So I I tried to write novels initially. It was really. Uh, these little anecdotes, which you see in the form of the book, 
which sometimes I would narrate to friends. And uh, then I realized this was the book, essentially, that I had been looking for. Um, You know, we can only imagine what you had gone through. And something that I could relate on a very personal level is, uh, you know, the hair pulling. Uh, because, you know, I understand uh, the shame and the stigma attached to it. I ha- I don't really speak about it to other people. So I think this is the first time I'm speaking about it in public because I've also had phases where I've, you know, uh, plucked my eyelashes. And that is something I'm not proud of. But when I read that in your book, I felt, oh my God, I haven't seen this in literature. So, you know, what was it like coming to terms with it and actually writing about it, especially something that people don't often talk about. You know, I uh, I used to exactly feel the same shame and embarrassment and humiliation internally. Uh, every time I used to go for a haircut or uh, to a salon, and and the and the hairstylist would be like, "How do you have a bald patch?" And I'd be like, "Oh, it was basically a chewingum that was on the uh, my my nephew or my niece accidentally put on the on the pillow or something." I would always create these excuses, and it was. Uh, I, in the in in the middle of all this, I also read uh, I'd also read this author uh, called Shinran. She, it, this is the, there's this book by her called Good Women of China, and she writes of a particular girl who is abused by a male relative in the family, and uh, she injures herself and she's hospitalized, and she escapes that abuse. Uh, in that duration, where she, when she's hospitalized and when the wound is about to heal. She starts poking it and probing it again so that it festers and doesn't heal so that she doesn't have to go back to the abuse. So that was one point I realized that when external circumstances become so overwhelming and threatening, women can tend to turn against their bodies. Also, I I think it's, it's a part of mental health, which also sort of merits conversations and discussions and we've just not had we've, we haven't even started not not even had enough i mean we haven't even started on this yeah thanks uh, for sharing that farah and uh, thanks for sharing it in your book because uh, you know it really does open up the conversation and a phrase that stuck out to me um, was you know when you said that ptsd for all of us growing up in kashmir should be reclassified as perennially traumatic stress disorder um, I found that so hard-hitting um, and emotional. But one of my favorite parts of the book was uh, how your grandmother, Bobby, is the most integral part of the book. The whole book uh, is centered around her. Um, and I would say it's a testimony to grandmother-granddaughter relationships. And I really found it so heartwarming because, you know, I'm very close to my nani. So when I was a kid, people would say, oh, Tara is a nani ki pooch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I love that, you know, uh, Bobby was such an integral part of the book. And she's also her death is used as a starting point for every section. So could you tell us, you know, why is she the central part of your book? And um, how did you decide to structure it around the day that she died, using that to then go on to narrate all of your memories? So, uh uh, you, you're right. I mean, she is really the central uh, sort of the, the center of the universe. I mean, as she was in my life, I was very close to her as, you know, in South Asia, you see that relationship between grandmothers, granddaughters, quite pronounced. Uh, it was also, she was a very uh, tall, elegant, very wise woman. Uh, and, you know, when uh, I, this st- manuscript went through two structural, three structural uh, changes. So one was 
just putting together all these memories as episodic as they are, as fragmented as they are, and uh, and just putting them out there. Because, you know, when you look at literature from other conflict zones, let's say Palestine, uh, you do you do see that, uh, you know, uh, these... Uh, the, the passages and the anecdotes and the memories are arranged in this manner. It's, it, when I sp- started spending more time with the drafts, I realized I hadn't really written much after her death, and it was. A, and I, I thought more, and I realized, you know, she was a very, uh, she had a very strong presence, and the way militarized sort of militarization diminished her as a person because she was suddenly introduced to a world which she had no idea about. She used to spend most of her, most of most parts of her days sitting by the windows. They were completely shut. Our window, windows turned into walls, literally, because you know, it was, we lived in a very restive area. So keeping a window open could cost you daily, as I also mentioned in the book. So her places where you should, the things that she used to enjoy doing were taken away from her. There were new things which were introduced to the landscape, for example, military bunkers. And she had no idea what a bunker was. She didn't even know how to pronounce it. She used to call it banker. And I used to sometimes you know, chide her, and which I feel extremely uh, now sort of very sad about. But what I realized was her life had changed so much in those four years. Uh, and it was a trauma that I didn't know I carried in me to see such a such an important figure uh, shrivel up and and she she sort of shrunk in a way and as a as a child as a young girl as a young woman i didn't know how to give her back that uh, that that uh, respect that you know she sort of commanded all her life i don't even think i chose this it's almost like this structure came to me to honor her presence in my life that's so beautiful and uh, you know so relatable because as our grandparents grow up you know one of my grandparents is sick right now and you just want to you know you feel so helpless uh and you know the way that you portrayed her i just loved it thank you thank you so much yeah and you know your book um adds humor too that that's one thing that i you know kept me going as a reader you know it had a mix of emotions it made me laugh it made me cry and and you know you you portray the innocence of childhood so well so there's a scene in the book which actually talks about the pasigdar i hope i'm pronouncing it right that's right um, yeah so it's the spirit that resides in every house and you know he appreciates cleanliness it's the first time that i've heard of it and you mentioned this one night where you were terrified when you heard noises you know because you thought it was the pasigdar who was actually making these noises so can you narrate that for us just thinking about it makes me laugh Sure. Um, uh, a lot of emphasis is, is played on cleanliness and being clean and going to bed. It's something that I also mentioned in the book. It was a way of disciplining us as if by, by our parents or grandparents. Pasadar is a benign spirit. You know, He's shown as a benign spirit who takes care of you, who guards the household. But it's doesn't it's not very compatible with uh with with dirt with filth or with with uncleanliness. So you have to really uh, make sure that you you maintain proper hygiene. And uh, these were see humor as Kashmiris. Uh, we we uh, there's a very uh, very different, very strange, very uh, uh, very witty way of dealing with things. Humor is something that also keeps us going in these times. Humor is something that keeps us, uh, uh, makes things slightly more bearable. So it's it's also a form of survival in some uh, 
in, in our case, which I feel has helped us, you know, move on from one day to another in, in, in really like very uh, dark times also. Yeah, no, definitely humor, you know, can be a coping mechanism. Um, and that is something, you know, I think, you know, no matter how difficult the circumstances are, when you, you know, see humor in it, that, that really elevates the experience. And I think that's what you did for the reader as well. And also, you know, I'm a Catholic and I'm, I'm, I'm aware of certain Hindu myths, but, you know, I wasn't really aware of, you know, stories from the Quran. And I actually found the story of Khwaja Khazir quite fascinating. So can you tell us a little more about him? So Khwaja Khazir uh, is a, uh is a figure it's a, it, it's a mystic figure that uh, uh, it basically appears in one of the chapters in quran in in surah uh, kahf and uh, it's basically he was known to be this mystic who had answers to great problems uh, in the in the world and uh, there is a prophet um, called uh, he wants to follow he wants to follow khaje khazar and wants to learn from him and uh, Khwaja Khazar tells him, I will, you will learn as we go along, but you're not supposed to ask me questions. And then it's, he's also a test in, he's also a lesson in patience because this prophet uh, follows him, but he's very impatient to know all the answers. He's impatient to know how does, uh, why does Khwaja Khazar behave in certain ways? Like he will punish a 10 year old boy or, or drown him because he can already, uh, he can foresee what this boy is capable of doing maybe 10 years later. So he has those powers. It's, it's the moral of that story is really a lesson in patience and letting uh, nature, uh, letting things sort of take, take their time and reveal certain things in due course, rather than becoming impatient and looking for answers then and there. This is something that my grandmother used to narrate. My mom still narrates it to, 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 the, you know, to this day. The thing is that you have to identify him. He'll not have a, he'll have a missing bone on the right, uh, in his right hand at the base of his thumb. So I used to like secretly look at all these hands and of all my uncles and, and he comes disguised as, he can come disguised as somebody else. It's not a, a mythical figure it's not a it's not someone he wouldn't look out you know otherworldly he can look as ordinary as as your next door neighbor so that became like an activity in my head that reminds me uh you know as a kid i read the book the witches so you know you'd always look out for you know women with wigs or gloves and you'd ask yourself okay is this you know yeah. <laughs> you'd always want to know you know is this a witch or not exactly yeah so <laughs> Even we have those stories as well in Kashmir. So there is this uh, uh, chapter called Metallic Monster and it's called Steel Dern. But Dern is really that witch who has her feet, uh, you know, her feet look very funny. Turn back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's the same <laughs> story that, that travels across cultures. Yeah. Very scary. But, you know, um, there were so many points in your book when I got so emotional um and you know one of the parts was uh, when you spoke about the post office that went up in flames um and you know because of that your correspondents used to write love uh, letters with a love interest and that correspondence remained broken uh you know for me it was very, very emotional to read to read something like that but what was you know there's so many challenging things in your book but what was the most challenging part of writing this book I think the most challenging part was, I mean, first few memories that one 
came very easily, like eight to ten, because I think one had spoken about them to friends uh, over over a period of years, and you know, so they came easy. There was no, uh, there was, there was, there were no barriers. There were no challenges to access them. But as I started thinking more and more about those years, I started having panic attacks and sleep, and I started uh, dreaming a particular dream. of a massacre in 1993 is called vijbihara vijbihara massacre and there is this particular photograph of uh, protesters who fled some have been killed and there are there are tons of shoes scattered on the street and uh, a trooper is examining them with his hand uh, at his back and i kept dreaming that almost every night and and i stopped writing for a while i was like you know maybe my health first accessing memories like there is a chapter called a wedding a funeral which was the most difficult to write uh, because i'm talk writing about my cousin's killing and till i sort of kept i used to make very incremental changes to that uh, till the end and uh, so that was one of the most difficult one to write it was also see the whole the book has about 36 chapters nine are about me directly linked to me and there are 14 about other women and i didn't want to tell their stories shabbily so i would remember that mem- i would think of that memory i would remember that particular incident but i would always go back and whoever that memory pertained with i would re i would get into a conversation about that particular instance no if it felt very real you know and another thing that i really really enjoyed uh you know was this whole element of the before and the after uh you know before you say you know you mentioned so many uh instances of life before and it made me think of the book persepolis which is also so much divided into you know before and after and also of our own lives because in the pandemic you know there's very much a before and an after um and you know so many of us have gone through so much uh, so that that was very very interesting the way that you structured the book you know the in the first chapter when you see the life changes in that one metamorphic hour i wanted to uh, create that slight fracture throughout the the narrative that suddenness that because life was changing on an hourly basis at, in those years i wanted that uh, change that suddenness with which the world turned upside down uh to reflect throughout the book but it also gives you the context because see so much has been written about kashmir and the, and the recent years the the press that uh, the, the way kashmiris can be portrayed in media uh or have been portrayed in media has not been kind you know so it's been a, a certain kind of narrative so when for me it was also to humanize that and give context to those lives that because it it somehow bothers somewhere bothers you that how people who mean so much to you who 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 are your flesh and blood when they turn into statistics you know what does it what does it do like as if they don't matter i mean obviously they don't matter they just become when when they call call things like collateral damage what does it what does the damage it inflicts on people who are left behind yeah and you know talking about people who mean a lot to you uh, there's Uh, you know you mentioned a nightmare like you know there are your book is full of dreams and recurring nightmares and and it does talk about a disappearance of a friend who's a kashmiri pandit and that really stayed with me because you know my father's very close friend is a kashmiri pandit he worked with him in the gulf and so when i told my father about this he said oh i should read this book <laughs> when you know he he's not really a reader but he really wanted to read this because you know you don't 
always hear about these stories they are usually buried but the way you've brought it alive was you know brilliant because you've shown this confusion of a child so well through that nightmare so how did you record that nightmare and what was it like dealing with the kashmiri pandit exodus as a child uh i was 12 when the exodus happened and it was uh, as we know it's the most unfortunate thing that happened one of the most unfortunate things to be displaced and uprooted uh, i uh, i there was this girl i used to compete with in the school and uh, you know she and i would always fight for the uh, uh, you know the top ranks and when i went back to school she wasn't there i was disoriented in a way that took me years to even understand so i had almost become like a very strange person for my parents uh, it was only my grandmother who was sort of sheltering me from that i had started pulling out hair i lost interest in studies i was i had started drawing a lot i used to draw uh, so my parents were sort of confused by this like what's happened to her but much later i realized it was whether it was her leaving and i have no idea how she left and how they left and as a child i didn't even know who to ask how to ask what to ask because uh one of the most traumatic memories was also rubaiya said's uh kidnapping you know her father was the then home minister of india mufti mohammad said and as a child i was thinking oh my god her father is so powerful and she was kidnapped and if he can protect her and i didn't know who to ask this to i didn't know how to articulate it like what does a 12 year old know about kidnapping what does a 12 year old know about militancy what does a 12 year old know about exodus uh, so how does an ordinary person deal with uh, the loss of of that of your neighbor complete like going missing overnight and then there was this big spices shop uh, where we used to live in zanakadal downtown srinagar uh it was th- that belonged to a very uh, well off kashmiri pandit that turned into a uh, military bunker and my grandmother just couldn't understand that like how does that happen where did zindlal go and what happened to his spice shop and why is why has army taken over that so as a child to make sense of all this i was part scared but i didn't have the grammar to be honest to ask these questions and they were sub- lodged in my subconscious and that's where they were manifested as as dreams for and it's not only then i there are certain dreams i dream of even now uh, like there is a dream i've also had in the pandemic i'm sleeping in a room and there's cross firing over my head and i can't get up because i'll i'll get hit by a bullet and this is a dream i used to even have as a 14 year old at different parts of my life and it's returned i've had it at least thrice since last year yeah no i mean yeah definitely it is something that cannot uh, you know go away uh that easily something that you know it's we have to confront with um every day and you know i have not seen anybody capture these nuances in a girl's life like every stage in a girl's life so well i really like how you've mentioned you know you loved a pop uh pakistani duo singers you know and you secretly wanted to be a singer and not a doctor like bobe wanted you to be so you know we were curious when did you know that you want to be a writer and it actually took me back to my childhood and i was wondering like when i was small i used to watch a lot of beauty pageant contests i wanted to be a model <laughs> and later i knew how unrealistic that was yeah <laughs> i started journaling at the age of 14 and because i thought there was so much changing and i just wanted to record anything that hap- that was big that ha- anything bigish in my, for a, for a young girl to happen it could have been 
I saw someone I liked during the relaxation hour uh, of in curfew at the end of the day. It could be something as that detail, or it could be someone. Uh, there was this uh, friend we had who lost her father. Uh, he was caught in a crossfiring. He had gone to take exams. By the time we came back, uh, she walked. You know, she she walked to his funeral. So uh, it was. It could be anything small or anything big. So I started journaling at the age of fourteen, and I don't know if I wanted to be a writer then, but it became a habit. It became a habit to sort of record memory on a daily basis. When I was uh, studying in Singapore, much later uh, for my postgrad, I uh, we used to go sometimes for films, uh, for movies, and and then we would come out and discuss the film, and I would say I would talk about things that they had missed, and they. And they'd be like, did we watch the same film? Which one, what scenes are you talking about? So I realized that people used to freak out by this level of detail that I used to absorb uh, in a conversation, body language, or or the colors that I remember. I mean, if I, if I meet someone, I would remember exact date, or I would remember the exact color of their dress. But it was really an exercise that had started much earlier in my life. And, and I still, uh, I mean, I, I still process things when I write them down. I can't think about them, but they almost become a little jumbled in my head till I write them down on paper. So writing also became a very private conversation one wanted to have uh, with oneself without the fear of it being overheard or or you saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong thing. So it, it really became like a survival tactic. Well, that is, uh, you know, really interesting because for me, um, you know, I just, I felt that I lack, uh, you know, uh, in my observation. So what I, what I do now is if, you know, I'm having a conversation with anybody, right? It could be my mother or my father. And if something really stands out to me, I make a point of, you know, noting it down somewhere because I feel that, you know, these nuances are often missed. Yeah, really. Yeah. And like, you know, I'm always so uh envious of people with memories like yours para uh trust me you know, sometimes that's... people think you're a freak and why do you remember so much <laughs> no it's amazing because you know for me it's the exact opposite so i have you know i'm the one that you know friends will say oh remember when we did this or remember that or my family will say something and it's just like a blank slate you know uh you know one of the things that i always do is before I start a book, I always read the acknowledgement section. I always always read the back cover and the acknowledgement section. I don't know why. It's just a habit and because I find it very fascinating. I do the same. Um, oh, awesome. <laughs> so, but in your acknowledgements, you had, you've mentioned, you know, your father, um, who you've acknowledged for, you know, introducing you to travel, exploration, and your mother for uh, Persian literature. And it was very interesting in the book, you know, you spoke about, you know, how your parents had to deal with the day-to-day political upheaval. Uh, But it's very interesting to know about these other aspects. So it got me thinking, uh, in a memoir, you obviously, you know, you want to portray a certain uh, mood, you want to process all of your memories, but how do you choose on what to focus on and what not to focus on? I think uh, it was uh, not, see, the memoir was also, is also capturing a time that doesn't exist in Kashmir anymore. It was also capturing a part of the culture. It was also capturing uh, the the grandmother's importance. So while it, it is a memoir, uh, but it's, I'm not the 
most important person in this memoir. So there is a place which is bigger than me. I am a very small component in Kashmir's story. Uh, I'm a very uh, insignificant, ordinary part of it. I, me, But me as a 16-year-old or a 15 or a 12-year-old, uh, her life was important because it tells you the impact wars and conflict zones can have on children and women. So that part of me becomes important. So the, it was, and whatever was, in, what shaped that young girl into the woman that she became, became important. The Kashmir story is important. Other women's stories are important. And uh, it, sometimes I feel that there could be a different genre for, for something like this. I mean, memoir is a little misleading if you if you ask me because then it sort of focuses on the person who's who's lived that life for me it was really like the time the context the place and other people and how they were joined uh how all of it comes together yeah that that makes sense yeah and we probably should have a separate genre for this yeah i mean there has to be a it's, it's the same ptsd loop that we get into You've covered so much in your book and I loved that you, you know, paid emphasis to this object, Windows, because, you know, it is it is our, uh, you know, window into the outside world. We, we make sense of a lot of stuff. And you have mentioned this in an interview online that, you know, the pandemic has brought us closer to our windows, right? So I, I have been thinking about this a lot because I feel that, you know, the view from our windows is something which most of the writers refer to. I recently saw a call for an anthology which spoke about, you know, just look out of your window and write something. So, you know, reading your book really changed my view of that. And it actually took me back to my childhood in Bahrain, where actually our windows were taped uh, during the Gulf War. And, you know, those tape marks were always there, uh, you know, even years later. So that's the first thing that you can notice. So I wanted to know, you know, what has your relationship been like with windows and how has it changed over the years? I mean, you, it's very interesting. You also talk about, uh, a war experience associated with windows. It makes me think as if uh, windows symbolize freedom. And when these windows are shut, that means like your homes, are, are they homes even, you know, do they become prisons? Do they become cells? Because that's where, you know, the, the phrase windowless cell or prisons aren't supposed to have windows. So what does it do uh, conceptually and and to a to a people where they're not allowed to peep uh, through their windows or windows become a space or, or spaces where from which they can only watch funerals or they can watch uh, something bad happening outside so windows become very symbolic in that sense it's almost like it's the even in Current times during the pandemic, when we are locked inside, our uh, sole point of contact with the world outside us are our windows. Yeah, for me, you know, uh, yeah, the whole aspect, you know, where you when you described, you know, windows being boarded up, uh, it was very, very, uh, very, very horrifying. Uh, but what was very interesting when we were doing our research is that, um, you know, we found out that you went to Singapore to study after a year at Kashmir University. So how did going out of Kashmir lend your memoir? Uh, it just made me realize uh, the gross unfairness of it all, like how a people are subjected to live. 
when I was in Kashmir, I didn't know any other world. And that was the point of reference. And that was how life was supposed to be. And Singapore was such a contrast uh, to what life in Kashmir was. It made one, it's extremely safe for women. I used to work with Reuters and Reuters has a has their office in tucked away in, in, in a little forest in Singapore. And I used to work shifts. I used to wake, I used to walk down at 4 a.m. in the morning down to uh, NUH, which is National University Hospital uh, canteen and get myself something to eat. That was unimaginable. I was here. I had grown up in a place uh, where I'd only seen night curfews. And here I was at a, in a place where women could just get up by themselves, go for a walk or a jog at 2 a.m. And uh, you would, and nothing would happen to you. And even relatively, I mean, where I'm right now in Delhi, which is so unsafe for women. But even here, uh, the the way lives are lived are, are so different to how lives, how we lived uh, in the 90s as women with so much of trepidation. Uh, it just made me angry. I think that also led to the urgency of uh, seeking one's voice and wanting to talk about it. A lot of people uh, also talk about, oh, you guys just become more vocal when you leave Kashmir. Why don't you talk about these things? I think what Kashmir does is you, you sort of, there's a certain, at least in those days, girls wouldn't talk so much or wouldn't exercise their agency uh, so they would not question things, just accept what was given, the th- way things turned out. But uh, when you see that a different world is possible. Yeah, I think, you know, going uh, to another place definitely gives you perspective. So for me, when I uh, went to Bangalore for higher studies, right, it was the first time that I left home. I could actually see a lot of things that happened in the past with a different perspective, with a different lens. I think being closer to the place doesn't give you that kind of um, liberty. Leaving the place that gave you your identity makes you uh, more cognizant of your identity in the first place. I remember when I had gone to America for my higher education, uh, they asked us to write an essay about who we were. And I never really thought about, you know, being Indian or anything like that, uh, you know, a culture. But over there, it just becomes so much starker. Uh, so that's very interesting. I also had friends from uh, different countries who used to celebrate uh, or miss or there was nostalgia, uh, you know, the way they used to talk about things uh, from their the, their lives back home. I realized there was, I hadn't really associated any nostalgia, but there was remembering home was dealing with a great deal of suffering and pain. So that was also like how people from different backgrounds talk uh, when you come from a non-conflict, no war zone, as opposed to someone where where it's uh, strife ridden. So that also, right. you know, makes you aware, acutely aware of what you've been denied as a, as a people. So um, Farah, we know that, you know, just like us, you are a huge bookworm and a lot of writers have influenced your writing style, right? So two writers at uh, stood out to us was Elena Ferrante and Kamila Shamsi. So, you know, can you tell us about the Kashmiri books that actually made you see literature differently? Were there any? Uh, yes, of course. Kashmir has a huge uh, repertoire of uh, literature. I mean, 
going back to 16th century, you read uh, Laldeh and her poetry has been, uh, she's a uh, 16th or 15th century poetess who whose poetry has been uh, translated. It's called Ailala. Uh, she she has a very, uh, a very mystical way of uh, looking at things, very, it talks in a very metaphysical way. Then we had uh, Haba Khatun. She was the peasant queen of Kashmir, uh, who was married to the last uh, Kashmiri king, Yusuf Shah Chak. And her ballads are so uh, popular. And there is there are songs about her poetry. And we, we grow up uh, singing those, uh, singing her poetry at the weddings. And all of us know most of her poems. And then there are other poets, uh, Rasul Mir, uh, Abdul Had Azad. There is a revolutionary poet, uh, Mahjur. And uh, if you listen to this band, uh, Parvaz, they have this song, Valo Bhagwan, Gul Gul Shin Gulfam, that is uh, based on his poetry. Uh, um, Rose Rose is another song that they uh, they have based on his, uh, it's another composition on, on Mahjur's poetry. So uh, a lot of poets, a lot of writers, there was this uh, short story writer, Akhtar Mayuddin. Uh, he, he, his, both his son and son-in-law were killed in the 90s. And he used to write in Kashmiri and very short, pithy stories. And it's impossible to uh, to capture the way he would capture life in those stories. And you read them and you read, read them and it's they just uh, hit you at a visceral level. And uh, then, of course, it was Aga Shahid Ali. And I borrow the title of my book, Rumors of Spring, from one of his poems. And he wrote uh, The Country Without a Post Office. He wrote this entire uh, fat anthology, uh, The Whale Suite. And that became, for a lot of people, that became an anchor, a place of solace and refuge. Um, to to process what we had seen in the 90s because he had insight, he had the insight, he had the uh, way to process things and he, it was almost like he was articulating our silences, helplessness. You know, you, you read about Urdu poets, Ghalib, Mir Takimir, uh, much later in school, but every household has this uh, way of weaving in uh, Poetry, or or you listen to the to, to radio. I mean, radio used to be quite a big thing. Even now, it is back home. Uh, and yeah, you you you're always reliving your own literature through form through through different forms, music or or poetry. Thanks for sharing the recommendations. I think that's one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast. Is you know getting recommendations and such diverse ones from all our authors and. Definitely, we'll put this as well into the list. Um, and speaking of publishing and your title, Michelle and I both love the title and we loved the cover of the book, the colors. And, you know, I think Michelle had got a, yeah, yeah. And you got a lot of comments, right? When you put yes, it up. Yes, Same. Actually, I just, yeah, I, I, posted, I posted it on my Insta grid, actually, a couple of days back. And a lot of people reached out saying, my God, what an attractive cover and title. I said, yeah, right. the book is way better. your publisher was Harper Collins and uh, you know you have been so candid in your book about 
so many political events but given the climate today you know did you fear censorship backlash have you got any you know how do you react to that um, what's it been like the publishing journey see uh, i wrote what i had to write i mean the first that was the i mean there was no self censorship the only incident i haven't written about is uh, one of my aunts who survived one of the massacres and she died much before i i wrote i began writing so i couldn't ratify her account so I had, and i was also writing about other people and their lives i the basic i could the basic thing i could do was uh, being have integrity about writing it and be as authentic as i could be and you know treat it with respect so there was no self censorship uh, in any of the drafts but what happens with memoirs is that they go through a legal uh, check with uh, in, within publishing and i did get back 14 instances where i they the legal pointed out uh, so there are you know these 14 places which can become uh, problematic or troublesome for you if you can uh, provide citations uh, so if you really see at the back in the notes section some of the incidents that i talk about have five six citations or references from international media national media where they were captured and covered so no uh, in fact there was one particular chapter where even in the last draft uh, when it went for the final check to the legal they were like if it didn't happen drop it and that made me fill uh, the citations the notes section with at least one and a half pages of uh, references from different uh, international media who had covered that particular incident Okay, yeah absolutely yeah really and i think you know your notes section especially at the end of the book that was one of my favorites because you actually explain a lot of kashmiri words and and phrases yeah and i like you know like as you said you know uh i mean you're recounting you know everyday human life and and what happens um and you know you did that so beautifully i mean, in fact it's i would like to give the the credit for the Uh, the notes section to my editor shohini uh, she was like let's keep the same tonality that we have in the book even in the notes section otherwise you know one had just sort of treated it like glossary so you there was a word and a definition but she's like just try and see if you can explain in the same way oh that's very fascinating yeah that that's such a good suggestion <laughs> yeah i actually read like an extension of the text you know at after a point i'm like oh is this a continuation yeah. of the story i don't, i don't think i've seen something like this before actually there is yeah. one other book i think uh, sam miller had also used footnotes in a very interesting way ah, because his books have okay. a lot of humor um and so right. you know he uses footnotes also you know he made them really funny Para, we are going to one of our most fun rounds uh, in the episode. It's called the rapid fire round. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, sketching or singing or reading? Singing. Oh wow! Okay, one Kashmiri dish we have to try. There's so many. I mean, this is the most confusing thing. Uh, Lahabdar kebab. Oh my mouth is watering. Okay. Um one Kashmiri song we have to listen to. Rose Rose by Parvaz. News editor or writer? Writer any day. 
one coming of age memoir you would recommend for girls i feel joan didion's the year of magical thinking even though it's written from a older woman's perspective but there's a lot of dignity grace humor humaneness in that actually that yeah i mean i love that you said that and i think it's one you know i was mentoring um, a writer who was writing about grief and i had recommended this book to her because uh, the way that she talks about you know grief and trauma is so nuanced and so sort of sensitive and well done so that that's a really great book recommendation anyway what is next for you i'm working on a group portrait of women uh, from 95 onwards so uh, it's it spans about a year uh, about 10 years and uh, it's it's loosely based on uh, little women the structure of little women about four sisters and uh, because you know uh, what happened after the 90s a lot of boys uh, went out either to study a lot of a lot of them were killed a lot of them uh, also became militants so a very st- different kind of sisterhood emerged a very different kind of a uh, very different friendships emerged uh within women and between women and uh, i and there is there are lots of and uh 95 is also when uh, politically uh things changed uh quite a bit in kashmir uh, the counter insurgency began and that created Uh, unimaginable challenges for women uh, so i want to also explore that and uh, write about that oh how cool <laughs> okay um i love question. little women yeah <laughs> yes no just saying i love little women yeah, yeah. i was watching the jumpa lady the other day i think after her book came out and in one of her interviews mm. she, someone asked her how did you know that you were going to be a writer and she said i didn't know but i used to read a lot of little women ફરાંગ Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for opening yes. up and sharing. Um we really really appreciate it. I'm so glad we spoke to her Tara. There's so much to learn from this, so much to absorb and understand. I mean, I really hope no one has to go through what she did and we do hope that this memoir serves as a wake up call to everyone, honestly. Yeah, really. Um and on another note as you guys know we are a story company we help you tell your stories and we offer a special mentorship program for writers who are looking to write their books be it memoir fiction non fiction we have a few spots left for our monsoon edition so if you're interested please reach out to us at connectedboundindia.com or dm us at boundindia Can't wait to hear from you guys and on our next episode we will be talking to Anshul Malhotra she is the author of Remnants of a Separation which looks at the partition of India through the lens of objects like ordinary objects everyday objects like utensils accessories like the mangtika 
Yeah, and through these objects, she covers the stories of people's lives who were upended by the partition, and it's such a beautiful project because I have people in my family who are affected by this, and she really digs deep. It's a piece of oral history that you wouldn't have seen before. So tune in, and if you haven't read the book, do check it out, and see you next time.